Don't mess with me, man. I've had some sinus stuff going on this week, and so I, my hearing is not all there. I, am I talking loud enough? Because it's very echoey in here right now. Okay, so um, we'll be in chapter 15 today of 1 Corinthians, and so if you want to turn there, you can do that with us now. Um, if you're new to Redeemer this morning, you need to know that we preach straight through books, and we have been preaching straight through 1 Corinthians for several months now. And uh, here we are in chapter 15. We just left a section on prophecy in tongues, which has been interesting because some of you were very, very excited about the chapters on the spiritual gifts. And you, um, you enjoyed that quite thoroughly. And then some of you were ready to be done with it as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's, it's like the Corinthian church and the American church have something in common. Like in both instances, you had these two polarized groups about one issue, and then you've got Paul in the middle saying, um, please be unified, all right? Um, his um, summary statement in chapter 14 is absolutely brilliant, and it's just a testimony to the, um, the fact that Scripture speaks to all generations across cultures. Um, he says this, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. How appropriate for our, our time. Um, okay, so we, we get to leave that message now and we're, we're going to chapter 15. And uh, Paul has been correcting them all throughout this book on various issues. He's gonna correct them on one more issue here. Um, and then he's going to end up landing the plane. There's 16 chapters in Corinthians. The last chapter is more just kind of a list of business items. But this is Paul's last um, big, big push. And it's an important one because if the Corinthians don't get this right, they're in danger of um, really jettisoning their faith altogether. And so this is a, uh, like I said, this is the biggest issue um, of all that he will cover in 1 Corinthians. So Let's pray, and then we'll read a portion of, of that chapter. Lord, thank you for a group of people who, whom you have inspired to, to be hungry for your word. We thank you that, that each week we gather here, and we hear the truth, and we hear by your spirit things that nourish our souls. Lord, would you continue to do that today? Amen. <clears throat> All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 today. Now, I want to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of all apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 
But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, even Christ has, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then that have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone Okay, um, like I said, up to this point, the, uh, the, the author of this, of this letter, Paul, has corrected, course-corrected the Corinthians on a ton of things. Uh, church unity, sexuality, marriage and singleness, idolatry, the Lord's Supper, corporate worship. They had a lot of issues, and it's funny to think about how the church leaders, the elders, would have, would have felt about all of their dirty laundry being aired for generations, for the whole world. Um, and yet the Lord knows that human nature is, is consistent and it's the same across cultures, across ages. And so their struggles are instructive for us. And uh, so let, let's get into it and see um, what he's got for us today. Um, there's a lot of theories. In fact, there's five um, regarding what's going on in the corporate psyche of the Corinthians here. Um, I'm only going to talk about two because to do all five is just too much. But um, the, the most likely are this. Here's the first one. And it, it's that possibly some Sadducees have gotten um, into this Corinthian church and infiltrated the thinking. Um, the Sadducees were Jewish people. If you think back to the Gospels, they were the ones who were arguing with Jesus about, about there not being a resurrection. Um, probably what's more likely, however, is that because um, Corinth is, is in Greece, and this is the time of the Roman Empire, that they just have a Greco-Roman view of the afterlife. And, and that's pretty simple. It, it, it's that there's no physical thing that lasts. Like the only thing that, that goes on when you die is just your spirit. And that's something to be desired. You're looking for this freedom from the physical. And so the idea that a physical body would, um, would rise from the dead and then inherit the afterlife is absolutely nonsensical to them. And so Paul's um, like every good preacher does, he, he's, he's hitting them where the culture has infiltrated their thinking and he's trying to, to correct it. Um, and if you think about it, our, our culture has been influenced heavily, of course, by, by this Western culture. We are the West, right? And so we still have some of these ideas floating around in our culture today, the idea that, um, that, that people would become angels and they float around with harps on clouds playing music all the time. Um, or that heaven, I was watching a show this morning with my kids and it showed the scene of heaven and, and heaven is this empty white space where there's a warm glow and, and people are having important conversations and they resemble their physical bodies that they had before they died, but they don't, that they don't really have a physical body. And so that's the kind of imagery I think that, that they were holding on to and Paul is saying, now, now hold on, wait a minute, um, that's not what happens. 
And if we, say that's, if we say that that's what happens, then we're actually denying something very, very important um, about a core tenet of the gospel, and that's the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so um, you also have to ask yourself, why in the world is he bringing this up now? Um, and, and there's a couple of reasons. It could be that this is just the last push. And so if it's the last thing that he says and it's the most important, then that makes sense to, to, to have it at the end because you're, you're more likely to remember it, right? But it could also be that because they have been walking and experiencing all of these physical gifts that they think that they're starting to, um, to, to, to work out this idea of spiritualness disconnected from the body, and, and they think that they're, they're starting to arrive at the spiritual state, and they're longing for that time when they can be disconnected from the body, and um, so the spiritual gifts would just kind of be a foretaste of that. Um, <clears throat> we don't know for sure, okay? But here it is, chapter 15, and... Um, In verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Okay, I'd like to start there. And and I'll tell you that whenever I was a kid, um, there were two neighbor kids who lived, or three, two on one side, one on the other, who lived next to me. And we were all close to the same age. And I rode the bus to school every day. And we would all get together, and we would wait for the bus um, together. And we... uh, it was one super cold morning, and there had been some ice accumu- accumulation on the, on the pavement. And so the buses were running late, and we were all huddled inside the door. And uh, here comes the bus, finally. And so we, we quickly just jet out the door. We're running because we almost have all of this energy that we siphon from our parents. And we're just running down the driveway as fast as we can. And then we hit the downward slant of the driveway and all four of us at the same time just totally wipe out. Did not see the, had no idea the ice was there. Um, and for some reason, I don't know why, but it had accumulated on the slant. And all four of us on the ground, total yard sale. Books, binders, papers, everything all over the place. I'll never forget that because the bus driver pulled up and we're like on the ground in pain. And the bus driver opens the door and starts yelling at us to hurry. And we're like, lady, what's going on? Like, um, so anyway, we get our things together and, and get on the bus. But, but here's, here's the point. Um, it's easy for, to take for granted the thing that you need to stand, okay? And it's friction. When you step on ice, you suddenly remember how important friction is. It is that thing that holds you in place. And when it's gone, you, you, you can't stand. And so it's very easy for the Corinthians now. Think about this. Um, Paul says early on in the chapter that in every way they were enriched in Christ, in all speech and all knowledge. Sorry, I said that early in the chapter, in chapter one. And that they were not lacking in any gift. They were a gifted community. They had great teachers speaking to them. They had scriptural knowledge They were working out, fleshing out the gifts, and they had forgotten the thing that they were standing on, and that was the gospel, and they needed to be reminded. And we understand this, because if you've ever been a part of a church or or, or been a Christian for very long, you understand how this works. You get this struggle, because you, you become a believer, and then you start to study the scriptures, and you start to build up some knowledge, right? And it's good. And God is good. He's faithful to, to speak into you. He's faithful to teach you things as you read the scriptures. And then you start to, to see sin take less of a hold in your life because that's what 
that's what God does. He starts to help you to be transformed on a heart level, and now you're not the same wretched, ridiculous person that you were. I mean, you are a little bit still, but, but not like you were. Sin doesn't have the same hold. And, and so as that happens, then you start to serve, and you start to plug in and start to do things for the community of people that, that, that you're surrounded by, and, and then you get, to, you get recognition for all these things. Everyone's saying, man, this person is really growing, and you're doing so awesome, and you're so gifted in this area. Thank you for serving. Thank you for teaching. Thank you for this and this and this. And suddenly you start to think that you're awesome. Um, because that's what we do, all right? And then you forget the very thing that has brought you into the body that has connected you to the Lord in the first place, and that is the gospel. And that's what happened to the Corinthians. And so he's reminding them, and, and, and I also want to just take a second to say this. If you notice over the next couple of weeks that his tone is a little bit harsh, well, it is. And it's because these, this is a prideful group, the whole letter, he has been addressing this pride, this pride that, that continues to wells up, excuse me, continues to well up and show itself in various ways. And um, I'll tell you, pride is the ice that you fall on, right? And the gospel is the thing that keeps you standing firmly. Um, okay, so the, the second thing in this verse that he says that I think is incredibly compelling, he says, um, that by the gospel, you are being saved. And for you English majors out there, you catch this, right? This is present progressive, being saved. He's not talking about our legal standing with God. When we come to faith in Jesus, we, um, we have like this declaration of rightness with the Lord now, okay? Because we believe and trust in that Christ has died for us, paid the penalty for our sins. We are good with God. But that's not what he's talking about here because he says being saved. This is something that's happening progressively. He's talking about sanctification, and that's a process. And... Um, Sanctification is this process that's ongoing in which we begin to break free from patterns of sin. And um, I, I don't know that we understand how the gospel continues to do that quite as well. Like we get justification. I'm right with God. I've got, you know, uh, to use a, a really terrible phrase, I've got fire insurance, right? But I don't think that we understand how the gospel works necessarily to help us to continue to be freed from sin. And, and if it's okay, I, I would just like to kind of help walk us through that. Um, we're all human here, and so we're sinners, and so we sin. Um, and when we sin, let me ask you, what is it that, that, that we do? Um, and, and maybe even more specifically, how do we feel? Whenever we do that thing, say that thing, have that urge, act on that urge, what is the feeling that then comes? Is it shame? Um, is it despair? Is it like a fear of retribution that, that God is gonna now take something away or cause some bad circumstance in your life because you, you made this mistake? Um, do we shift the blame on someone else? Um, or, or, or do we prop ourselves back up um, by focusing like on our good qualities? You say, yeah, man, I made this mistake today, but I'm really good at this, this, and this, and we start to speak these things into our mind so that, that we, don't know, we don't any longer feel that sense of guilt for the mistake that we made. Um, if, if we do any of those things at all, then we're not acting, we're not thinking, we're not feeling in line with the truth. Instead, this is what we should do. 
Whenever we make that mistake, have that urge, do that thing, whatever it is, the proper course of action is to confess your sin back to the Lord. To, now be, to, to, to have a conversation. To say, Lord, I did this. I thought this. My heart is this. And then to remind ourselves of the gospel. We remind ourselves of the truth. That God's overabundant love has already been demonstrated. That the death of Christ is exceedingly, exceedingly sufficient. And that we are not condemned. The wrath of God has been satisfied. And we are deeply loved by a patient, caring father. And he is committed to our Christ-likeness, to our development into holy beings. He is not committed to our destruction. If we begin to focus on that, the gospel, here's what happens. It's an amazing thing. You sin, you remind yourself of the gospel. The desire to sin then melts away out of gratitude because you have this deep overflowing sense of what you've been rescued from and the person in Jesus who has rescued you and now your heart wants to obey. You are literally being wooed back to the Father by reminding yourself of the gospel over and over and over and over again. Remind yourself of the gospel when you fall. That way you remember where you stand. And it could be that, that this, is, this is just a discipline for you. In recent months, it's been something that I've tried to do more often. I'm not great at it yet. But whenever I start to think, man, I'm great. <laughs> or conversely, whenever I start to think, man, I'm awful. Because it could go either way at any given moment, right? I can do something really awesome or I can do something really terrible. Um, Either of those, I don't need to live there. What I need to remember is that God has ransomed me. And neither my successes nor my failures, those things don't define me. Instead, that I'm a child of the Lord, purchased by the blood of Christ. That is my solid ground. That is the thing that I stand on. Um, okay, let, let's, uh, let's move on to the second part of verse 2. He says, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, this vanity idea comes up multiple times in the passage. It comes up again in 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians of the people who saw Jesus alive after um, he rose from the dead. You've got Cephas, that's, a, that's Peter. James, he says the rest of the apostles and more than 500 others. And he says that most of them are still alive. And the reason why he says that is because they could be questioned. If you, if you wanted to check into this, if you wanted to do your fact checking, you could literally go ask somebody. Um, and, and here's the other thing. He, he brings out the church leaders because he's saying, you probably felt some tension. Let me back up a little bit. You've probably seen some tension between Paul and the church. And I think that Paul is often having to defend his legitimacy uh, before them. And, and so he's saying, look, 
All of the church leaders agree to this fact. This is central. This is core. It doesn't matter if you ask Peter, if you ask James, if you ask me. We are all going to tell you the same thing. That Christ physically rose from the, from the dead. And he also uses this phrase, according to the scriptures. That comes up twice in this little section. The Old Testament um, is very plain about what happens with the Messiah. And there are a couple of... Uh, a couple of passages that we're going to read here in just a minute that very clearly make this point about what the Messiah is, who he is, what he's going to do. And, and here's the point that Paul's making. Look, the Old Testament says that Jesus is going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to ra- raise from the dead. If that doesn't happen, if that's not Jesus, then you're still dead in your sins because Jesus wasn't the Messiah, And so for the Corinthians to deny the bodily resurrection at all is to deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. And they are denying that Jesus is who he said he was. And so this is a huge, huge issue. Let me me read for you Isaiah 53. And if you want to turn there, you can. Um, You've got time. Isaiah 53 is one of the most amazing chapters in the entire Bible. This book was written over 700 years before Jesus was born, and the amount of detail that points to Christ is absolutely incredible. And so when I think about the trustworthiness of the Bible, when I think about the fact that, that the, the Bible has this core central message, like a thread that runs all the way through all the books, this is the book that I think of. Let me read for you Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the, Lord, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death, because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. And he will receive the mighty as spoil. Because he willingly submitted to death. And was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Isaiah 53 has all the core parts of the gospel. He died for our sins. He was buried, and then he came back alive. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. This is a short one. I'll just read this one. It says this, He will revive us after two days, and on the third day he will raise us up. 
so we can live in his presence. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. This is David. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. See, these passages the Jews understood were pointing forward to Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he's not the Messiah. And therefore, everyone is still dead in their sins. They are stepping up to the edge of disaster by denying a bodily resurrection. <clears throat> and by the way, Paul says, if, if the resurrection isn't, isn't a real thing, then we're all liars because we have been testifying that God rose this guy from the dead and that we saw him. So you're calling us all liars. Moreover, Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. People who love Jesus and follow him make sacrifices. There are things in life, there's comforts that, that, that Christians could obtain that they decide to, just to let go. And if, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then all of that sacrifice is for nothing. You're a fool. I'm a fool if I haven't done everything I can to enjoy this life. And Paul says, look, you're saying that everything I've done in my life is meaningless. All the sacrifices I have made are nothing. They're pointless if Christ didn't raise from the dead. He says in verses 8 through 10, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. There's that phrase, in vain again. This is a personal issue to him. You have to remember where Paul is, um, who Paul is. Paul was on his way to a town called Damascus. He had legal documentation in hand so that he could have Christians arrested. He was the guy that, that oversaw and he, um, he basically said, this is good. When Stephen was executed for being a believer, for being a Christian, Paul was a bad dude. Um, but Jesus doesn't kill him for it. And Jesus also doesn't let him persist in it. Instead, Jesus like commandeers his life and says, I'm going to take this life that you had intent, intended for this purpose. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it for your purpose or for my purpose now. Um, but God is an expert at making someone who is altogether unfit for his service into someone perfectly fit for his service. And Paul understands that he's the extreme example of that. And if we really think about it, it's, it's every Christian story. It's our story. Before, um, before I knew Jesus, I was dot, dot, dot. You fill in the blank. Maybe for you, you were just a licentious sinner. It could be that you, your only existence was to, to please yourself all the time. Maybe that was drugs or alcohol or, or food or other kinds of physical experiences, substances. But then God stepped in and showed you what true satisfaction is in Jesus. Or it could have been that that wasn't you, that you were just self-righteous, that you had grown up in, in, in church or, or just kind of always doing the right thing. But then God stepped in and he helped you to see that you don't have to pretend 
that you actually do have sin and allowed you to delight in the righteousness of Christ. It could be that as you grew up, you were abused or neglected. And so your life has just been this string of, of like bad circumstances um, because of the sins of your family or because your sin is, is compounding those, those issues. But then God steps in and he shows you the steadfast and unshakable love and comfort of the Spirit. And then he surrounds you with a body of believers that fill in the gap for those lost times and lost relationships that you suffered from your family. And so it doesn't matter what our past was, God retools it. He takes whatever it is that injured us, that harmed us, that wounded us, and what he does is he takes it and then he uses it for his purposes. Remember Paul, he, was, he calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. Of the tribe of Benjamin, as to zeal, he was, uh, he was a Pharisee. And so basically all, that, all of that means, that, I think that's Philippians, all that means is that, is that he, he was really serious about being a Jew. He knew his scriptures. Well, the problem is, is he knew his scriptures for all the wrong reasons. But, but, but then God saves him and then retools it. He says, no, I'm going to use this, and now you're going to write like this huge portion of the, the New Testament, which is incredible. God takes our experiences. He takes the things that, that, that we were, that we experienced before, and then he uses that to help us to be effective for his service after we're a believer. And so, I mean, here's, here's a quick little example. Uh, my parents are divorced, and that was a difficult time for me. Uh, and God spoke to me in that. Years after, God spoke to me in that. And, and so that wound that I suffered when I was, you know, 11-year-old kid or whatever, uh, God is comforted and healed. But here's the thing. Now when I see another kid who's got divorced parents, I get that. And so now I'm able to build that bridge and make that relationship and see where that kid is. And now I can have more patience in that situation. And as an educator, the Lord uses that for me, right? And so whatever it is that you were or are or still struggling with, God uses that to make you in a per, into a person who can be a testimony to what God can do. And so here's what you do. You plug into a GC. You, you decide, okay, you know what? I'm actually gonna get to know people at Redeemer. I'm gonna go to a GC. And your presence in that room with those people over meals, discussing scripture, whatever it is that you do, playing games, your presence is an encouragement to other believers because you've opened your life to people because you're able to say, this is what God has done in my life for me. And someone else hears that and then they begin to think, well, maybe he can do that for me. Because see, we're all running this race. We are all on this path to being rebuilt, retooled, reconstructed. And so when someone in my GC has gone through X, Y, Z, and now I'm looking at them and hearing them say, and God did this, it's like, man, I'm going through X, Y, Z, and I needed to hear that. <clears throat> when you are intentional with your coworkers and with your family and you have them into your home and you develop healthy relationships and you're paving the way for the gospel, what you are doing is you're being used for his service. Because you're saying, look, God has done this for me, and I know he can do it for you, and I like you, and I care about you, and I want to see that happen. And it's a natural overflow out of what God has done. 
when you serve over here and you um, hold babies or teach preschool, when you um, run sound or run the slides or, or sing or play up here, whatever it is that you're doing, you're not just doing your part. Whenever you host a GC, whenever you facilitate a GC, you're not just sharing the load. You are doing that, but that's not, that's not really the big picture. The big picture is this. God has done this for me, and I want to create an environment where he can do that for other people because God has saved me. I remember who I was, and now I want to see him do that for others. That's what we're doing when we're actually serving in the church. <clears throat> and, and that's Paul's story, right? He was one who had a wretched lifestyle um, because he, he imprisoned and murdered Christians. And then God used his life powerfully for the gospel. He was a powerful missionary, obviously a, a powerful writer, wrote so much of the New Testament. So, um, let's read Romans 8, 11. We're, we're about to land the plane here. Romans 8, 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. The resurrection of Jesus, it points to the power of the resurrection life that we get to live. Because Jesus powerfully rose from the dead by the Spirit, we can count on the Spirit powerfully working in us to make us into the people that God wants us to be. And the other thing is, is the resurrection, what it does is it helps us to know, look, death does not have the final say. And so as you think about your loved ones who have already passed on and you think about your future at some point, we are all going to die unless Jesus returns, okay? It's going to happen. Death is going to have its temporary victory, but ultimately, God overcomes death. That what happened in the garden, that curse will be broken. And here's that thread of redemption through the scripture where we see, look, what was lost and broken in the garden, God is fixing now. We get a taste of it now because we see the Spirit working, and we can count on a final fulfillment and, and raising from the dead, defeating death um, at, at the end of the age. So uh, I feel like at that point I'm getting, in, getting into the next passage, and so I'm going to wait. I'll let Jeremy do that next week. But um, with that said, let, let's pray, and the band's going to come up, and, uh, and then we'll sing. Lord, thank you for... Thank you for loving us. Thank you for um, your stamp of vindication on the work of Christ, that you rose him from the dead and that we have hope and that we have uh, an ability to not be in despair because we know for sure that death will not have its final say. Lord, thank you for the power that, that dwells in us, that mobilizes and, 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 and fuels our gifts that same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Thank you for, um, for giving us that power that we might live transformed lives. Lord, will you help us to walk in that? Will you help us to be the kind of people 
that glorify Jesus in that way.